Hello everyone, welcome to another episode of Opera After Dark. Today's episode, we are talking about an opera that is known to very few, but to those that know it, at least in our circle, it is very near and dear. It is near and dear to our hearts. Um, it is an opera that none of us really know anything about, <laughs> other than the fact that the main, the title character, the titular character, is mute. Which in an opera doesn't make an, a fair amount of sense, but um. So it's called The Mute Girl of Portici, and it's been the butt of a lot of jokes for a really long time. In um, French, one pronounces it la moutée, right? De Portici? Yes. I don't know. Sure. Right. Um, and it's by a man named Daniel Francois Esprit Aubert. So I'm going to give a little bit of uh, biographical information about Aubert. And then we're going to dive right into um, the plot of the mute girl of Portici, which doesn't truly make an enormous amount of sense. Uh, wonder, however, I... the the opera, even though nobody listens to it today and no one really knows it, it was the cause of a lot of shit. It was. Back, so we'll get back into in the that. day, which is actually really oh, interesting. Was it? Did yeah, like it was. We'll get into. We'll it. get into it. Well, I feel like it's so interesting with opera. Like, one day, surely, we will run out of random operas like this. But it doesn't seem like that's going to happen anytime (laughs) soon. (laughs) Every time we think we're not sure what to talk about next, we find another gem. It brings us back in. It's like every time there's something like the bloody nun or the mute girl of Portici. The mute girl of Portici. Oh, well, I'm glad we found that. Who knows if we'll Mm -hmm. find something like that again. And there's always something. Opera will provide. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, opera will provide. So, so please tell us about. Is it you said it's Aubert? Aubert, Daniel Daniel Francois Esprit Aubert. Uh, he's obviously French. <laughs> he was born in 1782 and he died in 1871. So he lived a pretty long, full life. Um, he was prominent in the 19th century cultivation of opera containing um, a lot of spoken as well as sung passages, what we would consider today be like comic opera, even like the beginnings of operetta. Mm-hmm. Um, he was influenced by people like Rossini, but he took his operas and sort of suited them to French taste whatever that would mean. Um, we're not going to talk about him an awful lot. Like, Aubert's not going to ever get his own episode uh, because his life... <laughs> no, because he's, his life he's was not pretty, that good. No, no, it's because he devoted most of his compositional life to opera, and it, his life was, you know, pretty uneventful. He lived his life, he got married, he wrote opera at the end. Um, he wrote a lot of religious cantatas and motets as well, uh, he was elected to the Académie Française in 1829, was the director of the Paris Conservatoire in 1842, and he actually Damn. yeah, became the chapelmeister to Napoleon III uh, in 1857. 
Uh, his music is thought of to have influenced the likes of um, composers that we have talked about in the past, such most recently as Charles Gounod, mm -hmm. uh, Jules Massenet, and Richard Strauss. Wow. Uh, so he obviously, in 1828, um, he wrote over 38 operas in his lifetime. Uh, and the one we're going to talk about today, The Mute Girl of Portici, it was written in 1828, and this opera, even though it's not known by anybody, is sort of considered as the archetype of what is considered, like, French grand opera. Naomi, why don't you tell us what French grand opera is? Well, the whole whole idea is that it's, like, over-the-top excessive in many forms, so in many ways. So usually a French grand opera has, like, five to six acts it's like always based on some kind of major historical event mm -hmm. that usually involves like armies or legions of people it's got ballets in it it always has a ballet in it because the french love ballet and the sets were considered to be extremely important and so they would be also like massive and grand mm -hmm. and so all together they were extremely expensive to create so so they were doing grand opera even in the 1820s. For some reason, I associated that with being like the latter half of the 19th century was grand opera. Well, no, it'd be 1820s because you look at composers like uh, Meyerbeer, who's mm -hmm. sort of known for this sort of French grand opera, and um, Hector Berlioz's Le Troyen. Le Troyen. Like yeah. literally, mm. in any production of Le Troyen, you need the Trojan horse on stage. So. Mm -hmm. wow. Gives you an idea of the scale that you need so to have. So, Girl Portici is considered like the primo archetype of what French grand opera is. It actually really impressed Richard Wagner, who modeled his opera Rienzi, who no one has ever seen because it's terrible. Um, <laughs> yeah, but you always hear about it. It's always Rienzi. Like, nobody ever watches it, but it's like, oh, Rienzi. Well, no one ever does early it. Early Wagner opera. Stupid. Mm -hmm. So it's stupid. The it, while the French were doing grand opera it was. At least at this time was when the Italians were doing their bel canto thing. Yeah, French grand opera kind of straddles bel canto and Verdi because if you think about it, like Verdi wrote some pieces that then were kind of transferred to French theaters that could be considered grand extending opera. the grand opera tradition, like Don Carlo, right, mm -hmm. is is a grand opera, and sometimes people call Aida a grand opera, but. Right. Mm -hmm. For some anyway. reason, I was just thinking that, like, when we have these different periods, like bel canto or verismo or whatever else, that, like, everybody's doing those things as opposed mm. to, like, it's just in certain areas. Well, Sorry. in the case of French Grand Opera, like, the Italians were not into ballet, right? So, mm -hmm. and ballet was a big part of French Grand Opera, and so that's why there's some pieces that there's like an Italian version and there is a French version and the Italian version essentially has no ballet, it's all cut out, but the French version <laughs> has these long ballet sequences. What so. do the Italians have against ballet? I think mm. they just like weren't into it. It wasn't their thing. <laughs> it wasn't their thing. Like, hey, I've got things to do. If you could skip the dancing, that would be great. <laughs> I'm like, I wanna go eat, please. Probably. And like ballet is a French, art form like yeah. it goes all the way back to Lully in the Baroque era and like you know the Sun King being super into ballet and that type of thing anyway Elspeth sorry maybe. my ring fell all Anyhow, kinds of noise. so your ring your papers 
everything. <laughs> so, an interesting thing about this opera, the Mute Girl of Portici. So, um, on August 25th in 1830, there was a performance, a special performance at the Theatre Royale uh, de la Monnaie in Brussels, which was um, now the capital of Belgium, but then it was just a city. <laughs> Just a um, place. Like, just a place, yeah. Um, and they hosted a very special performance of the opera The Mute Girl of Portici in honor of the birthday of King, King William I. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'll get into the details of the plot in a little bit, but um, The Mute Girl of Portici is basically this very nationalistic tale um, about a fisherman who overthrows uh, the Spanish government in uh, Naples in 1647 is what it's about. Um, and this tale really resonated powerfully with the rebels of the July Revolution in France that summer, but it also lit a patriotic fire in the hearts of its audiences in the Netherlands when this performance was taking place. Uh, Richard Wagner in 1871 uh, wrote a book called Reminiscences of Aubert, and in it he said the opera was recognized as an obvious precursor of the July Revolution and seldom has an artistic product stood in closer connection to a world event. So the July Revolution in France was basically the overthrowing of King Charles X um, and the um, ascent of his cousin, uh, Louis-Philippe, who was the Duke of Orléans, into the throne. Big political brouhaha, whatever. Hmm. Apparently the tenor who sang the lead role in Mute Girl of Portici was like a peasant, a leader of like the peasant peasants in the revolutionary peasants. And so uh. that also played into... The kind of political overtones that the like, piece had, they, like, um, like Marius. Yes, like Marius in Les Misérables. <laughs> um, so they performed it in Brussels, and after the performance, the crowd was whipped and sort of this in, into this nationalistic fervor, and there was a <laughs> I riot. Thought I thought you were meaning that the crowd was literally whipped. No, no, no. <laughs> well, some of them might have been because there were there was a riot. Mm-hmm. Mm. Um, so what happened was, as soon as the show ended, the audience exited and poured out onto the streets and they started occupying government buildings as well as destroying factories dang in in the days afterwards they designed a flag for belgian independence uh they even attached it to their standard with their shoelaces and used it to lead a charge against william the first royal army and they attracted a lot of support from brussels downtrodden underclass and in september the city fell into bloody street battles between the military and the rebels who were eventually victorious and then they drafted a declaration of independence on October 4th. And on December 20th, the London Conference declared that the United Kingdom of the Netherlands was dissolved. And soon afterwards, it confirmed that Belgium was now an independent country. Dang. So obviously, there were a lot of reasons for the Belgian Revolution. But primarily, it was the result of a great divide between the north and the southern provinces of the kingdom. Um, the southerners were mainly Roman Catholic. Um, and they resented their treatment on the hands of William I, who was the Dutch Protestant. What was that thing in Austin Powers? <laughs> oh. oh, it's like, I hate two things. Um, the discrimination of people based on their culture and the Dutch, right? right. <laughs> <laughs> so the king and was a Protestant the and the Dutch. Catholics, um, the Catholic bush- bishops in the South refused to collaborate with the government. And so all that um, <laughs> uh, simmering tension sort of sparked this revolution um, but it, it really was this opera that started this uh, this Belgian Revolution wow. and um, created Belgium as like an independent country, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but apparently, 
uh, for instance, uh, the Bishop of Ghent, his name was Maurice, Maurice Jean de Brulier. Uh, he hated the king's house so much that when their princess was pregnant in 1817, he cursed her unborn child. So, like, a lot of shit went Damn. down. And apparently this opera was just, like, the tipping point to the start of this revolution. But can you imagine, um, in this day and age, any piece of music that would cause people to, like, tumble out under the streets and riot and start, over like, start taking over government buildings and... Um, like fighting a revolution to like overthrow the monarchy, overthrow the government. Can you think of like anything like that that would happen in this day and age? I don't know about like a single piece of music, but I will mm-hmm. say that like as far as pop culture is concerned, I feel like you see a lot of political mobility taking place or at least like political actions on the part of the populace based off of what's happening in pop culture. Like yeah. there's several different like political movements that start in areas of film or with mm-hmm. mu- popular musicians or other things like that that take hold because of the people's position in popular culture. Yeah, but I, I don't know yeah. about one single starting like a legitimate and uh, not a legitimate a violent revolution. I don't know about that. I mean, it's pretty crazy when you think about. Uh, what importance this had in history and mm-hmm. how in this day and age like nobody knows maybe in Belgium people I was really gonna know say do, do, be, do Belgian people like are they like oh yeah Mugro Portici like, like, I, I have no idea you talk about in American history there's like the Boston Tea Party right or, right <laughs> Well, and no one knows what that is right in, in Belgian history maybe do they're you know like, what that oh, is yeah, it's a Canadian Portici. The Belgian Tea Party? The Boston Tea Party. Party. The Boston Tea Party. Oh, man. Okay. So I think... What was the Civil War about? Well, the... I mean, you must know that. Cotton. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so... That's if you you ask somebody in South Carolina. In South Carolina. (laughs) (laughs) Right. The War of Northern Aggression. I mean, don't people all also say that the Civil War was about freeing the slaves when really that's not true? People uh, say that, but the Civil War was legitimately about freeing right. the entire race of people. <laughs> yes. Right, right. I think a lot of, I think most people say freeing the slaves, but I think people in the South for a very long time said it was about states' rights, and actually still do, right? Yeah, states' rights. The, the War okay. of Northern Aggression. Right, I've heard that term. Really? Yes. In From movies. you. And also from you. I feel like you've you've mentioned that before. Right. I think it's very interesting. <laughs> Elspeth, I mean, I remember often... learning that a lot of the that like certain people in the US were very passionate about using the Civil War as a mechanism to end slavery. But then other people say that that's just a ridiculous thing that has come out afterwards well those people but, are nonsense i'm all, i'm what i'm what okay. you say? i was gonna I'm say elspeth, elspeth is always trying to assert her political views <laughs> about the war on northern uh, war of the northern war aggression. of northern aggression right right okay right. yeah but the boston tea party mm-hmm. yeah yeah this is what i think i know about it go for mm-hmm. it that like was not tea was a big import into what is now the United States of uh-huh. America at uh-huh. this time. And then was it not taxed? And people were really upset about the tax and how mm-hmm. the tax money was going mm-hmm. to Britain? Or, mm-hmm. 
other places. And so then they like snuck onto the boat and dumped all the tea into the water. And it was like a yeah. big thing because it was destroying all of these goods that had been imported. And mm-hmm. good job. You pretty much got it. Um, so why don't we dive into the plot of right. the Mute Girl Portici. The first thing I want to say is this opera sucks because there are no mezzos in it. Oh, oh. best opera ever. Kyle's getting death glares from I know, right? The two of us. But hey, <laughs> there's a lot of bases. Why is there so many bases? I don't know. Base, so base, base, bases. base. Like they don't already have more work. And than three me. tenors. Three tenors. Anyway. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> Brilliant. Whatever. There All right. is someone who's labeled here as dancer. That is the mute girl. Ooh, oh, she's a dancer. <laughs> oh, interesting. Yes, she generally is a dancer. Um, so is a dancer. <laughs> the mute girl is a dancer. <laughs> Anyways, I'm gonna laugh so, if the, focus, if the, people. the focus. plot of this opera has nothing. I'm gonna laugh so hard if it has nothing to do with like anything political. It's just all like very, you know. It's just like a random. No, opera it does. Plot. I okay, just told okay. you what it's about. I, that fisherman you? oh, you're causes right. an uprising against the king of Naples in 1647. That's what you're it's right. Based on. Okay. All right. Okay. Okay. Act one. Act one. Curtain rises. Um, there is a town square, and there's a chapel. Um, and the audience witnesses the wedding of a man named Alfonso, who is the son of the viceroy of Naples, who's like the mayor, governor, I, I guess, so. like the governor of Naples. Um, and he's marrying the Spanish princess Elvira. 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 Alfonso, however, is uh, <laughs> racked with guilt and remorse um, because he has seduced a woman named Fenella who is the mute sister of a fisherman named Mazaniello. Mm-hmm. Um, so he seduced her and then abandoned her. Dang. Jerk. Because Alfonso's a dick. Um, <laughs> they all are. So, of course, this happened, and now he's getting married to someone else. He's all of a sudden like, oh, I hope she's okay, because he's worried that he hasn't seen her in a while, so she must have committed suicide, right? Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Starts on a real high note, this opera. <laughs> I mean, it keeps getting getting uh, worse. So during the festival, there's like the big festival celebration because these two fancy people have just gotten married. Mm-hmm. Uh, during the festival, Fenella, the mute girl of Portici, mm-hmm. uh, rushes onto the stage and she's seeking protection from the viceroy, who is Alfonso's father, because he has kept her a prisoner for the past month. Oh, damn. Alfonso's father kept her as a prisoner. Or I think yeah. so. Okay, just making sure. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was confused if it was Alfonso kept her as a prisoner or his father, but then his father did. His father, because Alfonso didn't know what happened to her. Okay. Right, his father did. Yeah. Okay. okay. All right. Um, so she escapes from her prison and she narrates the entire story of her seduction by Alfonso via gestures. Because she's ah. fucking mute. <laughs> this is an opera. Ah. <laughs> so gonna have the main character not talk or so, sing. So wait, is this like the first mime sequence in opera? I have no idea. Let's say yes. 
That's probably not true. I, um, I, almost, I almost just said, shall we listen to it? <laughs> so there's a whole scene where she gestures as to how the seduction went down. Imagine that in your mind's eye. Um, oh, no. And then she shows everyone in the square the scarf that um, Alfonso gave her. Mm-hmm. And then um, Elvira promises to protect Fenella because Elvira is a quality woman. Um, and she's like, oh, my God, I feel so sorry for you. I'm a princess. We're going to take care of you. Don't worry about it. Come with me into the chapel. I'm going to take care of you. Um, so they go into the church, and they enter into the church, and Fenella looks up, and she sees the princess's a new husband in the distance, and she's like, oh, that dude. That is the dude that seduced me and then left me. Except she doesn't Dang. say anything. She's just like pointing like vigorously, right? Yeah, gesturing. yeah, yeah. Gesturing. But she's like gesturing, and apparently she just gesticulates enough that Elvira is like, "Oh shit!" She um, married him. See, and then okay, so Fenella I'm, is upset. I'm, no, okay, go ahead. What? <laughs> I'm taking this time. I feel like we've had. A, a nice little joke about how maybe a, a mute character isn't well suited to an opera, mm. which I mean, there's likely some validity to that, but it provides a a different space for storytelling, a different style of storytelling. That's true. Also, can I just say one of my favorite operas of all time, Rusalka, for like a whole act, Rusalka mm. is mute. She can't speak. And the orchestra expresses her thoughts, even though the stupid prince can't seem to figure out that the the woman he's fallen in love with can't speak and he doesn't understand why. Right. It's an artistic but, device. Yes. I do think that even though on the surface it Here. might sound incompatible, it's actually can be, it actually can be pretty good. Whammy. So what happens is... Uh, Elvira realizes what's going on. Fenella, the mute girl, Portici, is like, oh, my God. I made everything worse. Elvira seems like the super nice lady. And Fenella, like, runs away. And Elvira is like, shit, I just married this dude that has, like... A lot of baggage and he's horrible. A lot of baggage and he's horrible. And now we're married. can't wait isn't she within the annulment period couldn't she just like get it annulled or something maybe i don't know i I'm mean sure. i don't know hmm. feasible likely she does not get it annulled 
I don't think so. I don't know. But we got got five acts to get through. What happens in act two? Act two. I shouldn't be drawing this out like I am off to do. Yes. Act two. We're on the beach. We're on the beach now. Mm. So all the fishermen are hanging out on the beach and they're brooding, as fishermen are wont to do, (laughs) over uh, the tyranny of the government. Mm -hmm. Right? Uh, Massianello's best friend, Pietro, has been looking for Fenella all over the place, and he can't find her, um, but she eventually appears of her own accord, and she confesses her wrongs mm-hmm. via gesture and dance. Mm-hmm. Um, and her brother... <laughs> and mm, dance. And dance. <laughs> the, the power of dance. Wait, but her wrongs are dance. just that she was seduced by Alfonso. Right, but at this period of time, if a woman lets herself be seduced by another man, it's totally her fault. Totally. Right. By a man. It's, right. it's her fault. She, right. was asking, she was asking for it. Right. What, um, was she, what was she wearing? Come on. Exactly. <sighs> what, what was she wearing? Was she barefoot? Mm. Um, so Mazzanello, her brother, is really upset and, you know, to give him credit, he swears revenge not on her, but on Alfonso and the government and the people that did this to her. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, well, no, I'm sorry. He, Her brother swears to have revenge, but Fenella is still in love with Alfonso, which, girl, give me a fucking break. Uh... Um, she won't, she won't, like, let him know who it was that seduced her. Hmm. Um, so she won't give him his name, and Mazzanello, in turn calls all the fishermen to arms and they swear um, to like avenge the enemy of their country. They don't know who that is yet, but they swear revenge. Amor 
Okay, all right. Moving along. So five short acts. Short-ish acts. I'm sure. I'm assuming there's a lot of dance. I'm assuming so too. Probably a lot of like big chorus numbers with all the fishmen, all the people. Mm-hmm. So, so Act Three. What what do we have in store in Act Three? Act Three. We're in the marketplace in Naples, ah. Napoli. I like how we're kind of jumping around. Mm-hmm. We're we're jumping around all over the place. So we're in the marketplace. It's essentially like that scene in Oliver Twist when people are like. Who will buy my sweet red roses? Or that scene at the beginning of Beauty and the Beast. There goes the always the same old red and rose to sell. Every morning just a cane. Same as morning. This poor provincial account. Good morning, Val. Have you ever thought that Belle's kind of a bitch in that opening sequence? Like, who the hell does she think she is? These people are just living their lives. She's really judgmental. Oh, I guess so. I was, She's real judgy. I feel like I was most recently thinking about how, like, everybody's making such a big deal about how she reads books. And, like, that that's... Like, no one else reads? <laughs> why they she have was, a library. I why mean. is she reading? It's so dumb. <laughs> like, she could right. be baking bread or milking a cow. Right. So, act three. Anyway. <laughs> so act big, three opens. It's a big scene in all, though. Who will buy this wonderful morning? I'm mm-hmm. so high. I swear I could fly. It's that. Um, but in French. But en français. Operatically. Operatically. Uh, there's a, a man named Selva who is an officer in the Viceroy's um, army. Like, he's a one of the Viceroy's bodyguards. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's one of the people that Fenella has escaped from. Like, he was one of her guards while she was in prison. And he sees her because she's in the marketplace, and he attempts to rearrest her. Um, and people see this happening, and... The, the people and the fishermen, they all revolt, and they're victorious. And that's how the third nice. act ends. So they, like, form a human wall around her so that she can't get captured again? Ba- basically, sure. Right. A, nice. human, a human wall of dance. I feel <laughs> like it's like a gradual, so far it's a gradual process of, like, empowering the people. Mm-hmm. Like, at first it was just the, the woman that just got married. What was her name? Princess Elvira. Princess Elvira. Yeah. So at first she was like, "Wait, this isn't cool. Like, I'm not. There's. I have an issue with this." And then in the second act, it was the fishermen that were like a little bit more like, "Hey, really though, this is some bullshit. Like, what is happening?" Mm-hmm. And then in the third act, they're like, "Okay, we're doing something about this. Like, and they actually yep. do something. They do something about that." Thank you. 
fourth act, do they then become aggressive? Do they like? Well, okay, act yeah. four. Act four. Masaniello's uh, house. Yes, Masaniello's house. I'm calling it Masaniello, mm. but it's Masaniello. You're is right. Is it Masaniello? Probably. Uh, I don't know. Masaniello. Masaniello. Okay. Actually, that's probably correct. Uh, so Fenella uh, runs into her brother's house, and she explains the horrors that are going on. There's this big battle fight that's going on in the marketplace, and the people are victorious, but, like, people are being violent. Um, and... Mazzinello is very upset about this because he wants liberty and freedom for everybody, but um, he doesn't like the idea of everything turning violent, so he's very um, torn about this, and he doesn't want uh, further violence to happen, but he still wants liberty for the people, so he doesn't know what he's going to do. Um, and then all his comrades and the fishermen come into the house, and they tell him that Alfonso has escaped the town and that they are resolved to overtake and kill him because they have Ooh. figured out that Alfonso is the guy that uh, seduced Fenella. They did uh, get aggressive. They did get aggressive. Mm-hmm. So Fenella hears this, and she decides that she's going to save her lover. Um, and then randomly, because Alfonso... Is Alfonso a tenor? Alfonso, I believe, is a tenor. Of course he fucking is, because what happens next is... Um, Definitely a tenor. Fenella is in her room in her brother's house, and guess who shows up? Alfonso. Alfonso, because he's a fucking idiot, so he's like, I'm running from all these people, so where am I going to go? <laughs> this brother's, this girl's brother's house. That's nice. the girl that I rejected and left. And like, yeah, exactly. And my father imprisoned. Exactly. It sounds like a good idea to hide in her place. Well, fair but enough. He didn't, he didn't know that his dad okay, locked okay. her in prison well, for a month. She still um, loves him. So he still loves him, so he shows up and he he's like, Can can you can you hide me? <laughs> <laughs> Please hey, sorry about those that thing that I did, but uh... But the worst part is that he shows up with his wife. Oh, you this son poor of a woman, bitch. Elvira. I don't know why she's still with him. She's a fucking princess. I don't know. Um and Fenella looks at her, um, and she's like I'm going to forgive you, Alfonso, because Elvira <laughs> seems like a really nice woman, and I'm doing this for her sake. Oh, right? Gotcha. Well, that's fair. I mean, Elvira I did try to help her in the beginning in Act 1. Yes. Mm-hmm. I gestured, because when you, when you said that she was like and paused, at first I was going to say, uh-uh, but then she's mute, so then I just sh- shook my <laughs> head, but, but nobody can see that. <laughs> no so. can see that, no. The point is <sighs> moot, not mute. Ha. Huh. Ah, ah. Eh, eh, eh. <laughs> so um, at this point, Mazzianello enters the room and he's like, what the fuck's going on? Who are these people? Um, and everything sort of comes to light. And Mazzianello, because he's a super good dude, is like, I promise um, that I will protect you and I won't let these people take you and, and kill you because I don't want any more violence. Right? Damn. Um, and meanwhile, for a reason that's not 100% explained, I guess Mazzinello is head of the fishermen. Mm-hmm. Um, the magistrate of the city of Naples shows up at the house and he presents Mazzinello with the royal crown because there's been, in the meantime, the government has been toppled and they proclaim Mazzinello the king of Naples. That's amazing. Whoa. And act four. <laughs> wow, drama. So, this, so can you imagine this man shows up to your house and he's like, government's been overthrown. You are the king. <laughs> Here you go. Booyah. Wear Booyah. this crown. Wow, act only, five. only one act left. What this could one's possibly the best one, happen? You're never going to see, like, there's no way you could call what's coming. Just saying. 
Mm-hmm. Um, there's a big gathering of fishermen, and Pietro, who used to be Mazzinello's best friend, he's been really riled up by all of this uh, government overthrowing. Uh, <laughs> and he, can, he confines in someone that he actually, um, offstage during the intermission break, um, right. administered poison to Mazzinello because he feels like Mazzinello is a traitor to, uh, to their cause. Damn. Um, And while he's telling someone that, another guy rushes in to tell them that a fresh troop of soldiers is marching against the people and Alfonso is leading them. So knowing that Mazzianello alone can save save them, the fishermen entreat him to take command of them, and Mazzianello, even though he's deadly ill um, and half bereft of his reason because his best friend fucking poisoned him... Uh, says that he is going to do that because he just wants to protect everybody. Uh, And so there's a big battle, and simultaneously um, Mount Vesuvius erupts while this is happening. (laughs) Right, right. Of course. Um, But then people keep battling. People keep battling, and like, Mazzia- fuck the volcano. Fuck I don't the even volcano. Care. This is more important. Um, so Mazzianello actually falls and dies while he's trying to save the life of Elvira, who was in the middle of this fray. Aww. And on hearing this, his sister Fenella, the mute girl of Portici, she rushes to the balcony, balcony of the Viceroy's palace, which is where this is all taking place, and then she leaps off of the terrace into the abyss beneath while the fugitive noblemen take again possession of the city, and that is how it ends. Oh, that sucks. Can, yeah. can I just read for you a description of that final scene by Alex Ross? Yes. He says, The the mute girler La Mute reaches a denouement that makes Tosca look timid. The title character throws herself off a balcony as Vesuvius erupts, her body somehow plopping into the lava. What? <laughs> Go on. Well, that's that's how he that's how he describes it. Then he goes on to talk about other things. Um, that is to, horribly gruesome. It is gruesome, and like when I'm reading other plot synopses, I'm like, it doesn't explicitly say that she jumps into the lava, lava. but he's saying that she jumps off the balcony into bubbling lava, which Maybe, is you know, the, awful. The volcano erupted, Vesuvius erupted, and so there's lava everywhere. So if she jumps off the terrace, she means Yeah, like, so that would, insinu- yeah. that would insinuate that these people are, like, fighting, and then a volcano erupts, it's going to kill them all, but they just keep fighting, even though they're all going to die right. anyways. And then the noblemen take back the city. Oh. So the fishermen lose. That sucks. Mm-hmm. That's just enough to get people really pissed off. I feel like and uh, riot. Yeah. Riot. What was it? What was the name of the composer? Aubert. I feel like Aubert knew what he was doing. Maybe. <laughs> he was intentionally trying to incite rage. To incite a riot. <laughs> he was like, the good guys died. Flipping uh-huh. oh! ah! <laughs> tables. <laughs> Right. Oh, Elspeth's dream. My dream. My dream. Just flipping tables all over the place. Mm-hmm. We need to get you into a situation where you're feeling oppressed, so you can just I know. start. Well, <laughs> I am. I am a woman. Um, right. I knew that was coming. As soon as I said <laughs> <it>. <laughs> oh man. How yeah, much time you have on one. your hands? Um, so that <laughs> is the mute girl of Porchy, which is an opera that people don't know, but kind of changed the course of history and is now why Belgium is Belgium. 
That is cool. Yeah. Are there any, so even though people don't know the opera, are there any excerpts that if somebody heard them, they would recognize it? I don't think so. I don't so. think so, but there's actually a lot of recordings of it available mm-hmm. for one to listen to. So hmm. so that is the basic story of the Mute Girl of Porgy and its importance in history. And if you ever get a chance, I don't know what opera company is ever putting this on, but someone must be somewhere. People have definitely done it because there are some articles out there about when different opera companies have decided to take it on. Mm-hmm. So it's not done often, but... Right, it seems like quite the undertaking. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, how the big question about this really is how do you make Mount Vesuvius erupt on stage? <laughs> A right? solid question. Everything else can totally be done, but the volcanic eruption... Hey, now there's like projection screens easy that's true that's very true but i feel like this would be really hard to do like 50 years ago yeah yeah so that's true yeah all right well everybody thank you for listening if you have a quick minute after you're done with this episode it would be great if you could go into (laughs) itunes or google play or wherever you're listening to your podcast leave us a review uh, like five star review. We're not interested in any of that other crap. <laughs> Don't want your four star nonsense. <laughs> right, right. Five five star for the five acts in Be the Mute Girl of Portici. That's right. One for each act of the Mute Girl of Portici. There you go. Right. Also, don't forget to look for us on Facebook and Twitter. Twitter. Mm-hmm. As well as at operaafterdark.com. Yeah. And, and we'll. Yeah, we'll be with you guys next week. There'll be more episodes. There Hopefully. always is. Hopefully. So, uh, there's always more for... stuff to talk about. <laughs> like we've said, opera just never lets us down. All opera will provide. All right. Well, I'm Kyle. <laughs> I'm Elspeth. I'm Naomi. Bye. Bye. Bye.
Il a sauvé ses jours Et le peuple en courroux Il en est la victime Et je n'ai pu le secourir Je n'ai pu le secourir Je l'ai vengé du moins Nos bataillons fidèles Ont au loin dispersé Ces hordes de rebelles Mais Daniel n'en est plus Il ne savait 